This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Random Acts of Kindness segment. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories all over this great country and at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids. And also make sure to leave your story there. Our first story is from Memphis, where we found some kind cops and a young man with a very clear sense of priorities. It's a heartwarming video already viewed thousands of times. Memphis police officers brightening the holidays for an 11-year-old burglary victim. Tonight, the officers are talking about going beyond the call of duty. WMC Action News 5's Jason Miles live tonight with their response. Jason? Those officers work here at the Crump Station Police Precinct. They hope what they did inspires others this holiday season. You see on the news what Memphis police often encounter while on the job. 11-year-old Tontravian Campbell is proof that it's not all bad. Officers replaced the Xbox stolen during a burglary at his family's home. When we asked the the child if he was going to get a new Xbox for Christmas, he said, no, my mom doesn't have that kind of money. And... um, all the money she makes goes to pay the bills. Officers from Crump Station's Charlie Shift talked to us about the gesture, which went viral Sunday thanks to this Facebook video. This house was burglarized not too long ago, uh, today, while these folks were at church. They say Tontravian was more concerned about his mother than the stolen Xbox, which is what impressed them the most. Just to be able to alleviate some of his stress, just for that day and actually help their family when in this time, like Christmas, it, it really was an overwhelming feeling. Contravian actually posted a comment on the WMC Action News 5 Facebook page, writing in part, quote, am so thankful. His mother added, quote, I'm truly grateful for the generosity that was given to my son. Policing is not really about just going into dangerous situations. It's definitely about helping out the community as well. Something one 11-year-old found out firsthand. And officers bought that new Xbox and three games at the GameStop store in Midtown. The store donated an additional controller. Reporting live from the Crump Station Precinct, Jason Miles, WMC Action News 5. And our second story comes from CBS's Steve Hartman, who meets some of the most interesting and some of the kindest people in this country. For a deaf person like Ibby Paracha of Leesburg, Virginia, getting the drink you want at Starbucks can be a tall order. But Ibby says not here, thanks to a barista who recently did something truly Hello. grande. And when I came in, the first thing she did was she wrote the note. So I thought maybe she had a question for me or something. But it really wasn't a question at all. And as I read through it, it shocked me. He immediately posted this picture of the note which read, I've been learning ASL, American Sign Language, just so you can have the same experience as everyone else. What can I get for you today? That barista is Crystal Payne. Two Trenta iced coffee. She's new here. In fact, she'd only waited on Ibby once before deciding to go home, go on the internet, and learn sign language for him. Maybe I spent like three or more hours on it. Getting ready to take one order? Yeah. If he's a regular and I want to make that connection with my regulars, I should be able to at least ask him what he wants to drink. What you want drink? Today, Crystal knows everything she needs to wait on Ibby. Caramel frappuccino, please. And that really is the extent of their interaction. To Crystal, it's no big deal. 
But to Ibby, who says navigating a hearing world is often frustrating, what Crystal did was a wonderful gesture that he will never forget. He even saved the note. It was something that was very inspirational, so I wanted to, to keep it in the frame. Sometimes, customer service gets a bad rap, and it's often well-deserved. Hi, what can I get for you today? But there are those frontline workers who go above and beyond, not for a tip or because the boss is watching, but because kindness is who they are, and the customer, all they care about. And it's just something that really gave me genuine happiness. Even now? Yeah, even now. Still smiling. <laughs> and finally, here's a story about how regularly ordering a pizza saved a man's life. In the middle of a very busy Saturday night, the staff at this Domino's Pizza on Silverton Road realized that they hadn't gotten an order from one of their favorite customers in almost two weeks. So they went to check on him, and sure enough, he was having a medical emergency. So he always orders online, so it pretty much just comes up on our main line. Every couple days, Sarah Fuller's staff gets an order from one of their regulars, 48-year-old Kirk Alexander. But over the weekend, it dawned on everyone that they hadn't seen Alexander's name pop up for a long time. A couple different people had pointed it out to me, and so Saturday night was when I finally decided to look up to see when his last order what happened to be, and it was 11 days ago, which is not normal at all. Sarah sent a delivery driver to Alexander's house, and something was clearly wrong. He called us back and said that, you know, he knocked and heard the TV, but he didn't have an answer, and so we gave him his phone number, and then he tried to call. The staff called 911, and when deputies arrived, they heard Alexander inside yelling for help. They forced their way in and found him on the floor having a medical emergency. I bang on the door, but he doesn't always answer. Neighbor Robert Lalonde knows that Alexander's had health problems, so he keeps an eye on him, too. He was also worried that something was wrong, so he's grateful that Domino's stepped in. That's awesome. That is awesome. You know, most people just take it for granted. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's really cool. These Domino's employees are always on the move, trying to make and deliver food fast. But they say they're never too busy to help someone in need. We're always looking out for everyone out there and caring for our customers especially. And early yesterday morning, paramedics responded with deputies as well. They rushed Alexander to Salem Hospital, and he is still there tonight in fair condition. Live in Salem, Jamie Wilson, Fox 12, Oregon. And there you have it from all around this great country. From coast to coast, it's constantly happening. You just never hear about it. But here on Our American Stories, we do it every week. Random Acts of Kindness. And you can go to randomactsofkindness.org. Look for stories like this. Better still, post your stories there. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch all of our stories and all of our random acts of kindness. More after these messages. Save a wretch 
like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories. You're listening to the great Alan Jackson. Singing the most well-known song in the world. And each day this month, we're going to celebrate Infant Loss Month. Ronald Reagan commemorated it in the 1980s. And it touches me dearly because a very good friend of mine and my wife Well, she suffered two miscarriages, not one, two. Two successive ones. And unlike when folks lose a baby to a disease or to a car crash, the women just don't get the same, let us just say, love when this happens. I mean, people just say they they grieve for the woman, but then they... They're hoping she just gets past it because they don't know what she knows, which is that was a baby. And she had a name for that baby. She had plans. She'd probably painted a room. And I'll never forget seeing Pam's face, the anguish when she lost the first. And then the couple got back in the saddle seven or eight months later. They they went to try and have that next baby, and she was just jubilant. She announced pregnancy to everybody, and then it happened again. And we were so worried for her, and I had just never seen that kind of anguish. So October is infant loss month, and that's miscarriages. That's stillborn births, sudden infant death syndrome. And for anybody who's wondering what is inside the life of that woman, well, to those women who've lost babies this way, though those are babies. And just, if you know anybody who's just gone through it, just think about that. So what we're doing each day is compiling a a list of some women who've talked about that experience and want to share it with others. And also men, because it's not just the women who suffer the loss. Her husband was inconsolable. So I wanted to talk to you about Paul Smythe and what happened in his life as he experienced a tragic stillborn birth. Jonathan Paul was born at 4.03 a.m. on February 3rd, 2015 in his sack. The doctor said it was an extremely rare occurrence. You can see his little hands and his little feet in the sack, and it was one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen. Jonathan Paul was 10 and a half inches long and weighed 12 ounces. He was perfect in every way. He had my exact feet and my wife Amanda's hands. He looked just like me, just a lot smaller. We had 32 hours with him in the room with us, 32 hours of hanging out with him, 
32 hours of reading I'll Love You Forever, 32 hours of conversations, 32 hours of memories, 32 hours of holding him, 32 hours to say goodbye. Saying goodbye was the hardest thing that I have ever had to do. Handing him over to the funeral director just about killed me. Why, at the age of 28, do we need to make plans for our son's funeral? No parents should have to plan their child's funeral. And again, that was Paul Smythe. I think I want to just play one more. Jesse, we're going to go to Caroline's. Another story about a stillborn birth. When the doctor came in, I couldn't even look at the ultrasound. Not only were there too many tears in my eyes, but I think I knew what he was going to say, and I was too scared to see it for myself. He turned to me and said, I'm so sorry, Caroline, but the baby has passed. I'll never forget those words, and I'll never forget how my husband wrapped me in his arms, and I cried harder than I ever have before. I was only nine days from my due date. We decided to induce labor right away to speed things along, and later that night at 11.45 p.m. on June 28, 2010, I gave birth to our firstborn child. He was 7 pounds even, 20 inches long, and looked just like his daddy. He had dark brown wavy hair and the cutest little nose. We named him Kale. It wasn't until he was born that we learned that the umbilical cord, which was around his neck, had gotten too tight or compressed that it cut off the blood flow. My guess is it happened after contractions began once I went into early labor. We had some time with Kale, and we both held him, kissed him, and told him we loved him. But I wish I held him longer. I don't feel like I did him justice in the short time I held him. I wish I memorized every part of his body, unwrapped his blanket, and just examined his fingers and toes and the perfection that he was. I know forever wouldn't have been long enough, though. He was a beautiful baby, and I wish I could have shared him with the world. We'll love and miss Kale the rest of our lives, but we're thankful for the time that we did have with him. We're thankful that he made us parents and thankful that we are better able to understand and appreciate love, friendship, family, and all the things that are truly important in life. We know now the pain that is associated with losing a child, stillbirth in particular, and can better reach out to those who will unfortunately go through this same journey. Kale's life, as short as it was, has made us better people. If you're going through this, just know that you're not alone. While stillbirth is rare, it's not nearly as uncommon as people think. Don't be afraid to reach out to others and just know that any emotion you're feeling, be it anger, sadness, fear, or even joy, are totally normal and there's no need to rush through any of your grief. Also know that it comes in stages and it'll sneak up on you. But you're stronger than you think, even when you don't feel like it. If you know someone who is going through this, my biggest advice is to not be afraid to reach out. Don't let the fear of saying the wrong thing prevent you from saying anything. There's nothing wrong with saying I'm sorry or I'm thinking of you. It's words of encouragement and love that will help bring comfort to someone during their darkest days. Don't pretend that nothing happened and don't avoid talking about it. Our babies may have been stillborn, but they were still born. You know, it was amazing about that experience was watching people console Pam and some were just so dismissive and it made it so much harder. And you could almost tell an entire human being's outlook on life itself by how they actually handled my good friend Pam's grief. 
some some of my friends it just didn't even affect them. They just thought, well, whatever. It's just a, you know, the baby was never born. I don't. I don't what's the matter with her? It wasn't a life. It didn't happen. And others were just as 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 anguished. And so again, whatever your thoughts on are on when life begins, for these women, for these women, there is no confusion. None. And for these men, Mark Zuckerberg just spoke out publicly about he and his wife had two miscarriages over the last few years, and they finally are pregnant again, and it looks healthy. But he just spoke out very publicly and courageously about this, too. Yeah, it takes a lot of guts. Thanks for that, Alex. And, uh, and prayers for, for the Zuckerbergs or anybody who's who's gone through this, and the more we can talk about it, uh, the better. It's something that you're not hearing probably on a lot of airwaves. And you know, we try to have a lot of fun here, but we want to make sure that we tell the stories that really matter to folks. And the stories you're not hearing anywhere else here on Our American Stories. If you have a loved one who's gone through this, if you've gone through this, write us, share it with us, call us. We'll be doing this every night for the remainder of the month. This is Lee Habib. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about marriage with a person who has been doing amazing work in the marriage field. We'll be back in just a few. American Stories. And now it's time for our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment with our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak, the executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. This week, Deb brings us her conversation with Gil and Brenda Stewart, a married couple who both come from earlier divorces and now have a ministry to help folks just like them. My first marriage was 19 years, three boys. Never thought in a million years I'd be in this position. Uh, so when my first husband decided to leave, I was kind of in regrouping mode and, uh, and then going back to school and then Gil showed up. Yeah, I showed up. I was actually on tour with the circus (laughs) and we were having fun and the circus kicked me out. 
No, you're totally joking. Yes, right? I am. I, okay. I am. Because actually, the la- actually, crazy the, man? well, actually, the last four years of my marriage, which was 24 years, the last four years were a circus. Mm. Sadly to say, I mean, there were a lot of really good years, but those last four years were a circus. Mm. It, it was really sad and how that all ended. We had four children. I, you know, points in my life had been in the ministry. At that point in time, I was in, in the insurance business. I still am. But at that time, you know, when we went through the divorce, um, it, 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 it was a train wreck mm-hmm. and a really sad time for mm-hmm. the entire family. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of where I came from. Mm-hmm. And having gone through that, I'm sure you can empathize with a lot of couples that may have had divorce in their background. You know, even though the the, the demise took place while we were in church, it doesn't mean that you're insulated. I remember one guy coming to my office at the time saying, did you think you were bulletproof? And I went, well, yeah, I did. I mean, this isn't supposed to be happening. <laughs> and fortunately, though, there was... Even though life was coming apart at the seams, you know, I was in a good place because I, you know, I did have a church body and a men's group around me that kind of held me steady. I don't say this too often, but, you know, there was a particular time I was coming home from a business trip and crossing a bridge, you know, in a town in Southern Oregon. And it was like, there's no reason to live. I just wanted to stop the car and jump. Mm. But it was like the Holy Spirit said, no, we got more things for you to do. (laughs) There's, there's, there's a, so there was definitely the lies going on in my head, but I don't know, you know, Brenda, I mean, I don't know if you had that such serious thing. Well, I didn't have four years to work through it. I was kind of, my first husband pretty much said, I'm done. And we had maybe one or two counseling sessions, and I still to this day don't know exactly in his reasoning why he left. I can think of things that I could have improved on for sure, but that's where our stories are different is that Gil really battled for four years, and I was just kind of left like, I'm still like, what happened? I thought everything was fine. Mm -hmm. So I'll tell you something that um, I've seen when we first brought you to Wisconsin Mm -hmm. that was interesting. We had some very conservative church-going folks, and well-meaning, of course, mm-hmm. say, remarriage. Wait a minute. This is supposed to be great marriages. You're supposed to keep that first marriage together. What do you say to those folks that kind of come at you with a critical spirit like that? What, what is that? Oh, I see the bristles on your <laughs> neck. What? Well, be, be only because I used to be like that. In my first-time marriage, I was like, what's wrong with those remarried people? What's their problem? And now that I'm on the other side, it's like, you know what, folks? You can't just slap a Jesus label on your marriage and call it good. And and no, we do not endorse, condone, condone divorce. Absolutely not. We say you're married once. That is God's perfect plan. We are not supposed to mess with that. But people mess with it because of sin. So it's like, okay, so Gil and I both had, were abandoned. So what are we supposed to do now? So with our marriage now and with remarriages, we want them to succeed. Why should we want them to go through a re-divorce? Because at this point, it's not about the couple. It's about the kids. So it's like, come on, church, wake up. I think to add to that, too, with regards to the statistics, I think it was the Pew Report in 2011 that basically said that 42% of Adults in the United States now are in some form of a step family relationship, be it a step child themselves, a step parent, a step grandparent. 
it permeates our culture. So what would I say to somebody who says, no, don't pay attention to remarriage? I would say, I'm sorry, but you'd be missing about 40% of your congregation, which is really kind of scary. Because when you think about it, those people are already dealing with regret and shame. Mm -hmm. And where do they go? So there's the person driving in their car at home, listening to this program, saying, all right, but you don't understand. I'm already in the crazy. (laughs) What am I supposed to do about that? Well, depending upon how far you are into the crazy, keep a couple things in mind. And we'll just banter here a little bit. If the average step family, according to statistics, basically is on an average, an average step family may or may not blend, but typically it takes anywhere between five to seven years. So if you're at about year two or three and you are really struggling, I would have to say to you, you're right on time. Mm -hmm. That is totally normal. So if you're having a difficult time, just fasten your seatbelt a little (laughs) bit tighter Lean into your spouse a little bit closer and just can't say it any other way, but sometimes you just have to gut it out and to love one another, even though it's really rocky. 58% of people have not dealt with their past pain when they've remarried. 58%. So that to me is like, okay, what do I need to look at in my life of unforgiveness or hurt or unmet expectations or anything like that, what, what can I do to um, have my heart full again to be fully able to give it to my spouse right. and to be able to have that high level of trust and honesty and that you feel safe that anything I share with you, you won't use against me. And when trust has been obliterated in previous relationships, that may take some time to build, but that's okay because it's amazing when you do that vulnerability stuff, how much strength that brings to the couple. Well, and I think, too, the crazy, because, well, what's driving the crazy? Is it the relationship? Typically, in remarried couples, the crazy isn't driven by the by the couple. Typically, the couple's getting along okay. It's those people, i.e. your children. <laughs> and most of the time, the marriages that are second marriages have more difficulty because of the dynamics of kids. Well, sure, even in a, a nuclear one first-time family, kids can know, they know how to drive a wedge. Multiply that by about a zillion with stepchildren. If that's what's causing the crazy, then, you know, there's the nature of setting some healthy boundaries. And maybe the reason why that kid is flipping out is is that they didn't get a place, a healthy place to grieve. Mm -hmm. They may be grieving and it's coming out all over the place. And that might be what's driving the crazy. And unfortunately, Deb, we don't grieve real well in the United States. We don't give a place for it. We're just supposed to be shiny face and move on. What a bunch of posers. Honestly, we really need to learn how to let a healthy level of grief take place. And honestly, the most loving thing you could do is just put your arms around the crazy and hold it tight till it settles down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That you're helped in a safe place to land yeah. mm-hmm. and that you're not going to go away. That's huge. I mean, honestly, for Brenda and I as, as a step family couple, one of the most soothing things I can hear from my now wife is to say, I'm freaking out. And for her to say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. I'm, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not this. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. And I can say, oh, wow, I, I trust you. Mm-hmm. That's got as much weight to it as I love you mm-hmm. for us. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That makes sense. I think our kids need to hear that, too, because our remarriage represents another loss to them. Because, I mean, I'm in my 50s, and I still want my parents to get back together who were divorced 40 years ago. So it's just that innate, that's the right way things are supposed to be in relationships. So even though we might be thrilled and happy about the remarriage, don't assume that our kids are. Or other family members, because it's not just about the family tree, it's the step-family force now, because you have aunts and uncles, in-laws, ex-laws, outlaws, that who knows where that, and if they've even grieved the loss of the family. Well, you heard from Gil and Brenda Stewart when we come back in our Marriage on the Mind segment, our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak. More after this. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're back with our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment with our marriage coach, Deb Olniak. Deb is the executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, a group whose innovative couple-to-couple mentoring program has an 87% success rate in saving struggling marriages, and that's compared to a mere 28 with traditional counseling. Every week... Deb joins us for storytelling about marriage, marriage of every kind, old marriages, new marriages, troubled marriages, and here, second marriages. And that fascinating conversation with Gil and Brenda Stewart, uh, Deb brought to us with Alex's help. And Deb, Deb, Gil and Brenda Stewart now have a ministry called Restored and Remarried to help folks just like them. How did you meet this couple, Deb? Well, I met them through a group called NARMI, the National Association for Relationship and Marriage Education, a wonderful group that uh, meets uh, even once a year. Um, uh, this year, is their conference is out in Anaheim, California, July 16th through 21st. If you want to check out their website, it's NARMI.org, N-A-R-M-E.org, and you can find out more about them. But let me tell you, the people that gather at this particular summit – are wonderful educators and program folks that um, are throughout the country that help support family and marriage. And these people are some of the best of the best. I met Gil and Brenda a couple years ago uh, down in Atlanta, and I was amazed at uh, the gifting that they have. Actually, I take that back. It was Texas. I got to think about the right conference. And they, right away, I saw them across the room, and I said, the lights are on in their head. I need to go talk to them. There was something about how they acted with each other, their body language, their conversational tone. I'm like, there's, some, there's a story behind that. Instantly fell in love with their story and with the um, work that they do with both faith-based and non-faith-based folks. I want to make that clear. Yep. And I said, you know, we got to get you to Wisconsin. we got to keep learning because the experiences you've had are teaching so many people. You know, I found the whole discussion about the church to be fascinating. Look, some of our listeners go to church, some don't. Uh, but for the ones that do, we somehow feel inoculated, as, as uh, the couple said, from this thing called divorce, as if somehow this seal of Christianity is some kind of good housekeeping seal. We can't get in trouble. And, of course, we can. And talk about that, because there are human beings inside this church. And these things are happening more and more. Are churches dealing with this well? Deborah, are they they in denial? 
Yeah, I think there's going to be two sides to this particular story. The first thing is people do need to be aware of in the church of their choice that couples are struggling. Families are struggling. They may show their, you know, Sunday face and things are good. You might even have a climate in your church where you kind of, quote unquote, play the game and church it. You know what I mean? But that's not ultimately, for those of you who are of faith, where God, capital G, calls us. He calls us to a more vulnerable position to say, listen, I want to work with you through these challenges. So a really good church is going to give opportunities for their congregation individually and private or in groups for awareness. What are some of the challenges we're having in our marriage today? What are some of the things where are we at? Because every marriage looks different. It's almost like a fingerprint. It's very specific to you as a couple. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest challenges I'm going to give you guys as a couple, if you're listening, is really identify where you're at, what's working in your marriage, and what are the challenge areas, especially those of you who have been remarried, because your divorce rate is even up into the 70s if you don't take care of it. 70% or 73 in some cases of second marriages get divorced. We don't want that. We want you to be, um, in fact, that might even be a little high. It may be as low as 63. It just depends on what area of the country you're in. But it really needs to be addressed honestly, within your relationship and in the church, to be able to go to a a pastor that can coach you, that has experience in that area is important. If they don't have that, please seek out somebody in your community who does. Ask around and find out who has worked with couples on remarriage issues or on marriage issues that has a proven track record to help you out. Well, and those those remarriage issues are uh, of a different order than the marriage issues in some respects, Deb, and that is these kids and the reblending of families. And I've I've seen this in my own life, and that that we finally get to hear somebody say, "Look, it's two years. Don't worry about it. Hug that kid. Get through it. Let them know it's okay." Uh, talk about this whole uh, reblending issue and how this right. exacerbates or makes more difficult. Um, that, that marriage, uh, possibility in the long shot of succeeding. What, talk about the, 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 the blending, the blending of these two separate families, Deb. Right, right. So, so I think Gil and Brent did a really good job on identifying what is your, your core story from your first relationship. As you come into that second relationship, that second marriage, it's not only working out the challenges within your couple relationship, but really bringing along the kids. And the kids, you know, they're going to show different sides of their emotions. Sometimes before you're married, things are awesome. I mean, they're looking forward to the wedding. You know, things are rolling along. And then all of a sudden, once the ring goes on the finger, some of the kids start to either change their emotional response to that. Um, And part of that may be, and it depends on each child because they're all different, it might be that they're seeing now that they have a safe place to start working through some of that emotions or maybe not feeling safe. You need to help identify at an age-appropriate manner with that child, what are you feeling, maybe getting that one-on-one time with the parent of origin that you can like sit down with that child and say, well, you, what, what are the things that you're seeing? What do you like? What are things that concern you? Reassuring that child, but then possibly getting additional support for that child. That could be in a counseling situation or a coaching or mentoring scenario. 
Sometimes, especially for teens, it may even be somebody either in your church environment or even out in an area where maybe you have a working professional that they identify with because that's the career they want to go to that can come alongside them and really encourage them. They're going through change just like you're going through change. Sometimes the learning curve is longer because they're at a totally different stage in their lives. And what they're looking for is that you're not going to leave me. This is a secure environment. I tr- I'm building trust with a new group of family members. And that bonding experience takes time. They use a really good example. It's not a blender where you press a button and it mixes all up. It really is one of those pots that stews on the stove, that slow cooker. And we all have tasted it. When we go home and we have that beautiful smell we walk into the house with, and we can maybe dive into that tender roast beef, we know that all those flavors have kind of mixed together to make a beautiful dish. That's kind of what we're hoping for with those families that are blended, that it can create its own special blend of of newness and, and comfort and also growth. Because guess what? As much as you're afraid to want to go through this and as much as the kids are afraid, I will tell you what, as you work through it as a family, that bond strengthens even stronger than before. And as you build that trust and respect, these kids, these young folks are going to be sent off in the world. And they're going to say, as they make their marriage commitments, I know that what I went through was tough but I know that I can take what I've learned and apply it to my marriage. Very important. You bet. You know, that five to seven year mark as opposed to the two year mark, you know, in in a country that as, as your couple said, don't grieve well or don't like to grieve. We also want fast. We want, we want things to get resolved fast. We want to get over things Mm -hmm. fast. And I think this is a, it it, it runs in opposition to how human beings actually do heal. You know, I'll I'll tell you a quick story, Deb. I, I remember seeing the movie Kramer versus Kramer. And if you remember that movie, Meryl Streep just walks out. And my parents were always there. So I, I sort of grieved a little bit, but I was with a group of friends. And two of my friends were crying uncontrollably during that scene. And their parents had been divorced. And they, it was as if both of them, these young ladies had said, and it was, it was a boy that was left behind in the movie, but these two young girls were left behind by a father who walked out. In this movie, the woman walked out and left a little boy behind. But they remember that scene. They remember that scene, and it puts them right back when they were kids. And in some respects, they told me they still weren't over it, Deb, because they never got to really uh-huh. talk about it with anybody. Right. Talk right. about that. And that's, yeah, that's too bad because um, part of that is an opportunity if put in the right environment and the openness of the parent, even the parent that may have been left behind, to be able to talk through that and grieve with that child, giving them space to say what they need to say. And sometimes, again, let me note that this might have to be with a professional because you're dealing with the hardcore issues of the human mind and the human heart. And when these things feel broken, it affects everything. It affects your decision-making. It affects how maybe you might even choose certain jobs or other relationships. And we want each individual to be able to walk through that pain in a healthy manner. Yes, acknowledge it. Even like 40 years later, that still is grieving me. But I've learned from that in these ways to help me process that even 40 years later. Know that there's never a timeline. You can't set a clock for five minutes and just get over it. Yep. It's just not going to happen. You need to yourself be in tune with yourself to know what your needs are and to be honest and courageous 
to be able to say that. And to those of you who have parents that maybe are, are like, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and they're not at a place where they can give back in this way, and you're an adult child of divorce, I really want you to take a moment with yourself and do some journaling because I want you to get in tune with what's going on there. Something that you're struggling with today could be highly influenced by things that maybe happened decades ago and you've never given yourself the opportunity and the freedom to explore that. But we want to make sure that you get the right support system around you that can help coach you through that. There's, there can be a lot of stuff there. Well, Deb, thanks so much as always. A great segment again. We're talking with Deb Olniak. Our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment. And again, Deb, thanks for all you do. Thank you. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. our American stories, and we love to talk about American dreamers, because America is not America without them. Small and big dreams, every kind of dream. And whether you're a diehard Harley Davidson rider, or you just never step, well, step your butt down on a hog, either way, there is no denying that few motorcycle companies have achieved the success that Harley Davidson has over their 113 plus year history. But who were the visionaries behind this iconic brand? Today, we're going to tell you their incredible story. A Harley Davidson is more than a motorcycle. Like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and Levi's, it has become one of the most popular American products in the world. It is a symbol of America's inventiveness, rugged individualism, and pioneering spirit. Ironically, what would become one of the world's largest and most widely recognized motorcycle manufacturers was born out of pure and simple laziness. Harley and the Davidson brothers embarked on a quest to take the work out of bicycling. Their dream was to build a motorized bicycle that would enable people to travel reliably and as fast as the technology of the time would allow. But the road to success was not exactly smooth. It was filled with innumerable obstacles, ruthless competitors, and extraordinary risks. Together, these young men, the son of blue-collar immigrants, gave everything they had to ensure the survival of the company they founded. But just how far would they go to reach the ultimate American dream? This is their story. Around the turn of the 19th century, a new invention was sweeping across America. The bicycle. This two-wheeled wonder enabled individuals to travel farther and faster than ever before and millions of Americans spun off to explore the country with their pedal power. Here's Harley-Davidson Motor Company historian, 
Martin Rosenblum. Bicycling is something that uh, is hard to think of in the present relative to the way it was in the past because it was so immensely popular at the turn of the century. There were millions of bicycles. The bicycling craze attracted the attention of a number of young entrepreneurs, including the Wright brothers. Wilbur and Orville would give up cycling for their airborne adventures. But Harley and the Davidson brothers were interested in keeping their wheels on the ground. One day while doing a roadside repair on his bike, the high-spirited Arthur Davidson observes a cyclist hitching a ride on an automobile by holding onto the rear fender. This moment will be the initial spark that fuels a revolution in the world of transportation. Davidson pitches his idea to neighborhood friend and mechanical genius Bill Harley, who has been spending his time developing a small combustion engine. Well, what do you think? I think it's an upside down bike. No, your foot engine on the bike. This is it, this is our venture, a motorized bicycle. I don't know. Others are messing around with engines on bikes. So we do it better. Maybe, but the, the foot engine isn't even big enough to power a bicycle. So we just, uh... No, before you say we just do this or do that, build in an engine, any engine, it's a massive undertaking. You build railroad engines. I'm just a draftsman. This would take metallurgy, combustion science, machine tools, and money. None of which we have. Bill, Bill, I've known you since we could walk. You were born for this. You know it too. It's 1903 in Wisconsin, and William Harley and Arthur Davidson are determined to find a faster system for traveling on two wheels. The invention of the combustion engine has inspired them to believe they can motorize the bicycle, but it's proving to be a daunting challenge for these ambitious young men with a shared past. William Harley is born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and grows up a couple doors down the street from future partner Arthur Davidson. In the wake of the Civil War, America is rapidly industrializing. By the late 19th century, Milwaukee is an economic powerhouse and a leading producer of iron ore. By 1890, the city is home to 2,879 manufacturers. One of them, the Meiselbach Bicycle Factory, hires 15-year-old William Harley as a cycle fitter. Over the next several years, Harley gains experience as an engineer and draftsman. It isn't long before he's caught up in the city's spirit of innovation, and he starts rethinking the bicycles he's building. No one knows for sure, but some believe that the idea for a bicycle begins with the sketch by a pupil of Leonardo da Vinci in 1493. But it's not until 1817 that Baron Karl von Dreyas of Germany builds the first working bicycle. In 1867, Sylvester Roper, a Massachusetts inventor, tries to put a steam engine inside the frame to power the wheels. But the technology is unreliable and the machine quickly fails. 18 years later, in 1885, Gottlieb Daimler patents the Reitwagen. It's widely considered to be the world's first motorcycle, 
but Gottlieb abandons the project to focus on developing the automobile. William Harley, now 21, is fascinated with the idea of adding motorized power to the bicycle. His studies in mechanical engineering at the University of Wisconsin at Madison will be a tremendous asset in his pursuits. In 1901, Harley quits the bicycle business and teams up with his old friend, 20-year-old Arthur Davidson, to pursue the idea of a motor-driven bicycle. And when we come back, we'll learn what happens next as these two young lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, intersect. This is Our American Stories, the story of Harley and the Davidson Brothers. with our American Dreamers segment, Harley Meets Davidson in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Here's what happens next. The pair work tirelessly for the next two years. At first, their designs are pretty crude. Their first carburetor they made themselves reportedly out of a tomato can. They said their first uh, spark plugs were as big as doorknobs and cost $3 each, and by 1902 standards, that's a lot of money. They developed their first engine. And it works. For a little bit. What? What happened? These homebrew parts aren't cutting it. We need precision machining and new parts, Arthur. We can't just keep cannibalizing everything. The boys need help. Okay. Grab a pencil. They call on Arthur Davidson's older brother, the tough-as-nails railroad machinist, Walter. Grab a pencil. Write this down. Dear brother, I write to you of a great opportunity. You really think Walter will invest in such a small operation? He's family. Besides, he's a big-time rancher and a railroad machinist. And this is smart money. Remember Bill Harley from across the road? He and I have made an amazing machine. A motorized bicycle. The engine is strong and swift. She'll take you anywhere you're brave enough to point her. We could use some capital. $75 for marketing and such. We'll gladly repay you with interest. Initial estimates put sales in the hundreds. Don't be ridiculous, Arthur. Maybe you're right. Initial estimates put sales in the thousands. Walter is intrigued and pays Bill Harley and his brother Arthur a visit. You were going to take your brother's money for that? And pay me back how, huh? You've never worked a full week in your life. How many others have you floated this past? No one. It isn't like that. And what is it like? We made the engine. It works. It works? It did. Until uh, it didn't. 
The fruits are not very promising, but when Walter sees the beautifully detailed sketches and the blueprints plastered all over the walls, his attitude quickly changes. You made this, Harley? We both did. You both drew these. Not bad, Harley. What about the final drive? Um, the main issue there is the chain that's breaking. Chain, huh? You could try a belt drive. Like on a tractor? <laughs> it ain't pretty, but it'll work. Let's try it. Good. The three boys immediately get to work on their new idea. Press the inlet valve. Hold it, okay? Press it. It's pressed. Are you pressing it? Yeah! Oh! Ah. Ah. Keep pedaling, keep going! But Harley is torn between his academic pursuits... See? It works! ...and his invention. I'll never be late again! Damn it, my exam! Where's he going? College! Go to college? Yeah, that's his plan! What's yours? Listen! Walter gets tunnel vision and wants in on the motorized bicycle. It took the three of us to get it to work. You can't just walk in here and be part of this. This is our adventure. You need me. Get over it. After his first test drive through the plains of Wisconsin, Walter Davidson is euphoric. Arthur comes out on their front porch to get some feedback. You're back. <laughs> what? What is it? This machine. <laughs> it's... I, I can't explain. It's like... This is it. And our next version... Oh, I'm sorry, our? No, no, you must mean Bill and I. Because I, I don't see why we would... Forget about trams, cars, trains. This is like nothing else. I'm, I'm still shaking. I rode it until it ran dry. Twice. Walter wants more from Bill Harley's machine and is willing to pay for it. Can this go faster? For what? No, no, it'll, it'll be too loud, too dangerous. Nobody's going to want to buy that. People will want it, trust me. Can't make this one faster, but if we had money... Sure, yeah, we definitely could. $175. That's all I got. We don't need all you got. If I'm going to put my money into this... It needs to be real. What's it needs to be real? Others are already doing this. So we gotta be different. Ours needs to be bigger, stronger, faster. We built it tough. I want ours to go anywhere. Finally, in 1903, they're ready to test their new machine. But it fails to get up the Milwaukee Hills under its own power. Not even a two-horse engine. Okay, so we just use it for 
For what? For pastors who want to take it on Sunday picnics? How Bill Harley and Arthur Davidson solve this problem will alter the future course of our country, the way we fight wars, and redefine American manufacturing along the way. We built a loop frame. It'll handle a little better. It does look like a motorcycle. Remember, we're selling to people who come from bicycles. Should we make it look like a horse? The result is called a loop frame motorcycle with a 440cc engine. Here's vice president of the Harley-Davidson Museum, Bill Davidson. When you look at serial number one, the cradling of that engine follows the function of delivering that horsepower to the ground. The 1903 is truly a ground-up designed motorcycle. The three friends found the Harley-Davidson Motorcycle Company and begin producing bikes inside of a 10 by 15 foot wooden shed in the backyard of the Davidson family home. They were just a couple guys and they had a really tiny, tiny little building that said Harley-Davidson. In 1904, Harley produces just three motorcycles. A year later, they build seven. But it's while trying to sell their bikes that they hit on a second revolutionary idea that will change the structure of American business. Here again is Bill Davidson. They talked to a gentleman by the name of C.H. Lang. The dapper Lang approaches Arthur Davidson. C.H. Lang. Piano tuners. I own the largest manufacturer in North America. Well, if you're interested in purchasing a Davidson Harley, I suggest you act fast. Our initial factory run has sold out. Do you have a car? They're being printed. At your factory? Your coat is a hand-me-down, your shoes are covered in grease, and you have no car. I believe this company you speak of is largely fiction. Well, our bike is real. Well, how about we discuss how to get your machine built en masse and into dealerships across the country? In dealerships, Mr. Davidson, I see a great opportunity for both of us. Arthur rushes home to share the news with Walter and the rest of the Davidson family. I've got a check here for $1,000. Whoa. From whom? A Chicago businessman who wants to open a dealership in Bacchus. Another shady associate? Business is full of shady associates, mother, but this one is for real. C.H. Lang? Bank says it's good. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh! Oh! Jonas! <laughs> oh, big Bill, we're gonna need a foreman to uh, oversee things. Like I'm gonna work for my bonehead little brother. Maybe I'll think about it. The third Davidson brother, William, also a railroad mechanic, joins the team. And when we come back from three bicycles, motorcycles sold to seven, and then finally some backing and some capital. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of Harley Davidson. When we come back.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our American Dreamers segment. And now that capital has been infused into the equation, we learn now what happens next to Harley-Davidson. They talked to a gentleman by the name of C.H. Lang, who opened our first Harley-Davidson dealership in Chicago, Illinois. And you think about that. 03, they roll the first bike out. 04, they start a dealer network. By 1909, just five years after starting, Harley has 13 employees building 1,000 bikes a year, and they establish unique dealerships in New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Newark. At the time, few products have specialized stores operated by skilled salesmen. Harley, however, believes offering the public a dedicated staff will entice buyers, raise sales, and build brand loyalty. The concept of creating dealership networks quickly spreads to the sale of automobiles and then to chain stores in other industries. But to keep growing, the company needs a better product. So Bill Harley develops a new, more reliable engine. The result is a design revolution. Well, look at this. Oh, this design's going to concentrate power. A lot more power. Good job, Bill. I just hope it works. It's going to eat up the rest of Lang's investment. It'll work. Here again is Bill Davidson. Our engine, 45 degree V angle, is truly the heartbeat of our motorcycles. It's called the V-Twin, introduced in 1909. It's a dependable motor that has two cylinders instead of one. The design is so elegant that the same basic form is still used today. The V-Twin is one of the most popular engines for motorcycles, and Harley has always used a V-Twin. And like most of the prestigious companies operating today, scrutiny almost always follows success. So too was the case in the early days of the Harley-Davidson Motor Company when a hostile reporter paid Arthur Davidson a visit before printing another motorcycle hit piece on what she dubbed the murder cycle. It's a pleasure to meet you, Miss. You might not want to shake my hand when you hear why I've come here today. Oh. I'm writing an article about the dangers of motorcycling, murder cycles, I call them, and wanted to give you the chance to go on record. Another article. Great. Yes, thank you. This is very kind of you. Pardon? Please. Murder cycles have captured the attention of young men across the country. There seems to be something about these deadly machines which excites the spirit. The freedom and the speed of these machines provokes a new kind of wildness. Thank you. I couldn't have phrased it better myself. This kind of press is hard to stimulate. You look like the cat who swallowed the canary. Nope, not at all. I understand being driven to a cause, and I respect somebody who stands for their beliefs. Please, Miss Beisel, write as many anti-motorcycle articles as you possibly can. Uh, uh, do me one favor, though. What's that, Mr. Davidson? Please don't ever ride one of our machines. Because if you do, 
You'll have too much fun. You'll become a huge enthusiast, and then there goes all my free press. Five years later, in 1917, the United States enters the First World War. The Indian and the Harley-Davidson, America's top two motorcycle companies, get drafted. Both companies eagerly arrive at their meeting with the army officials. But what neither company knows is that this is not a done deal. Walter and Arthur Davidson and Indian's president, Randall James, walk into the meeting together. We're using your boat because we need you both. Indian and Harley-Davidson are number one and two, and we expect your full commitment at this critical time. How many units are we talking about? Well, to begin with, the Army General Staff is contemplating 25,000 from Indian and 15,000 from Harley-Davidson. But Arthur Davidson comes prepared. Uh, sir, our engineer has taken the liberty of drawing up a few uh, preliminary military applications from our existing machines. The army official scans Harley's drawings. These are really very good. Randall James is caught flat-footed and tries to regain leverage. Our entire engineering staff is waiting to work on this at a moment's notice. Waiting to see if you get the contract? <laughs> I'm waiting to hear your specifications, General. At this critical juncture, we have little time to waste on something you needn't require. Arthur quickly reacts. Along with our full commitment, Harley-Davidson is willing to offer an exclusive maintenance program to the U.S. military. In what capacity? The Harley-Davidson Quartermaster Training School. We'll send technicians to bases all around the country to teach military personnel how to fully maintain, overhaul, repair, and, if necessary, scavenge parts from one machine to another. Oh, and uh, all free of charge. Free of charge? Yes, sir. At this critical juncture, we feel that it's our obligation. With the strain of combat on man and machine, Harley-Davidson finds it absolutely imperative that the American fighting man know how to repair his motorcycle in the field, rather than waiting for maintenance crews like the British and the French and the German armies do. Sir, American men already know how to fix things. That's true. Why not let us give them that extra advantage? Arthur's quick thinking gives Harley-Davidson the edge over Indian motorcycles. Let's make it 20,000 each to Harley-Davidson and Indian. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Initially, the bikes are only used by messengers, but the machines prove so effective that they're soon deployed on the front lines. Free quartermaster training school, couldn't this ruin us? No, this will not be our ruin. This is about customer loyalty. It's an addendum to the Harley-Davidson Motorcycle Clubs. Only now it includes the entire U.S. Army. After the war, we'll have an entire group of loyal Harley-Davidson enthusiasts, men who went to hell and back on a machine that they know inside and out, that they love, our machine. That means group rides, uh, social mixers, clubs. By the time the war ends in 1918, over 20,000 motorcycles see active duty and they leave a generation of American GIs hooked on them. And over here are our selection of Excelsiors. I'm only interested in Harley-Davidson. I hear that a lot after their Army Quartermaster School program. Boys coming back only want Harleys, just like yourself. Returning vets are full of stories and gratitude, 
because of their time spent on the Harley-Davidson motorcycle. One such vet made a visit to the Harley-Davidson factory in order to personally thank the owners of the company for saving his battalion. How may we help you? You already did. I was at Mir Jagan. I, I want to shake the hands of the men who saved my life. Saved the whole battalion. If it weren't for that Holly Davidson, none of us would be alive. Yeah, we, we took a real beating getting back to our lines and German shells knocked me down. Looks like it was a mess. Frame bent, crankcase pouring oil, but she was still running. No. <laughs> Got me out of there so I could get a message back to HQ. Thank you. Are you kidding? Thank you. Absolutely. I forgot something. This is from all of us. It's our battalion flag. Old fella signed it. And when we come back, the final installment of this great story, the story of Harley Davidson as a part of our American Dreamers series here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories and the final segment in this hour-long celebration of Harley-Davidson. And what a story this is. And now, let's take a listen to the last installment. The exposure around the globe during the war also helps drive worldwide sales. By 1920, we were selling motorcycles in 68 different countries around the world. But while Harley and the Davidsons are reeling in their post-war success, the president of Indian Motorcycles drops a bomb on them. Arthur, Walter, and Bill open the letter. It's a class action lawsuit for infringement on a patented clutch design from Indian, Excelsior, a few others. What? This isn't anything. Everyone steals from each other. You didn't steal anything. I designed the damn thing. I, you just, I just didn't patent it? Oh, apparently someone else did. Why are they suing us now over a 10-year-old patent? We still use that clutch. The same one? Yes. On how many machines? majority of them. This could ruin us. The feisty Walter Davidson marches into the office of Indian Motorcycle President Randall James. Walter, I thought I'd hear from you. You organized this? Got the others to join you? 
Oh, yes, it is unfortunate, what with your record sales and all. You couldn't stomach that we overtook you, so you cooked this up. Cooked up what? You're the ones who failed to protect themselves. It's always been a competition between us, but never backhanded. Never snaky like this. <laughs> We're businessmen, Walter. We're businessmen. Law is the law. A patent is a patent, no matter who originally designed whatever. I'm not a lawyer, Walter, but I'm almost certain that simple negligence does not shield a company from breaking the law. Oh, Walter, lawyers can be very expensive. Have a good trip back. Harley and the Davidsons assess the possible outcome of the class action lawsuit. If we fight and lose, it'll be $300,000. $300,000? And then the settlement. Which probably means bankruptcy. Uh, if we fight and win, it's still $300,000 to the lawyers. And then we sit and wait for the rest of the patent suits to tumble in. They'll pick us apart suit by suit. In a shocker, the always ready to fight Walter Davidson sees the writing on the wall. He shares the news with Bill Harley and his brother, Arthur. I told the lawyers to settle. Pay him out and get it behind us. You did what? What does this mean for us? It means we have nothing, Bill. Why would you do that? Come on. Look at what I found. The optimistic Walter has a surprise for the boys. He's found the first Harley Davidson motorcycle they ever produced. Is this right? It's a reminder of who they are mm -hmm. and what they are capable of. Number one off the line. No modifications. Let me try. You got the front? Yeah, I got you. <laughs> Started up like nothing. It's a very emotional moment for Harley and the Davidsons. Serial number one. But it's an optimistic one. We built this 20 years ago. It's still running. You're right, Walter. We start over from scratch. We don't need to be number one. It's about the machine. We're Harley Davidson. We'll keep building motorcycles even if we have to do it in a shed. Amen, brother. The boys start over, but it won't take long before they're back on top. Amen. Throughout the 1920s, Harley sets sales records, hitting a peak of 21,000 in 1929. But just a few months later, the Great Depression throws American business into a tailspin and Harley-Davidson is hit hard. Sales drop almost 80%, and we had no money. Here's Matt Levitich, president and CEO of the Harley-Davidson Motor Company. What do we do now? We're selling 300 motorcycles, not 20,000. If Harley-Davidson can't come up with something fast, the American motorcycle could go the way of the horse and carriage. Chips may never hit the highway, Returning vets may never have an outlet for their post-war angst. And a revolutionary business model might never shape today's most successful companies.
So the four partners return to what has rescued them before, innovation. But this time it's not engineering. It's a revolutionary business strategy called merchandising. Walter recognized the allure of the motorcycle look and launched a campaign to sell Harley-Davidson accessories and clothing. They sell leather jackets with the company masthead, a tactic virtually unheard of at the time. What you wear becomes a statement of who you are. The ingenious marketing move helps the company survive the down days of the 1920s and created a booming market for Harley-Davidson accessories that remains a major part of the company's success to this day. Harley's fight for survival finally comes to an end when the United States enter World War II in 1941. One of the reasons that Harley survived is because it sought military contracting. It was a strategic decision. We shut down all civilian production. We essentially went to wartime production, building 90,000 of our motorcycles. They somehow managed to get military contracts so that they didn't die during World War II like so many other motorcycle makers. The wartime manufacturing lifts sales. But in the middle of the war, William Harley dies of a heart attack on September 18, 1943. The human engine of Harley-Davidson is no longer there to propel the company through the post-war years. But the company endures, with all three of the Davidson brothers continuing to work for Harley-Davidson up until their deaths, with Arthur Davidson outliving all of them until he passed away in 1950 from an automobile accident. Over the next few decades, as a second generation of management will rise through the corporate ranks to replace the company's founding fathers, Harley-Davidson will experience a series of ups and downs, resulting from image and mechanical problems, as well as competition from the Japanese. But by being faithful to the tradition of quality and development established by its founding fathers, Harley-Davidson stands as the sole survivor of what was once a group of 300 U.S. motorcycle manufacturers. Today, motorcycles are accepted by every strata of society everywhere in the world. This isn't just an American thing, this is a human thing. That is the great equalizer across demographics, ages, cultures, crosses borders, generations, socioeconomic classes, ideologies, religion. On the front lines or at home, motorcycles symbolize modern culture. And Harley-Davidson has also made them stand for freedom and national pride. What America does better than anything else is sell culture. When you sell a Harley, you are selling America at its best, the American ideal, the optimistic America in a way that nobody else can do. The legacy of Harley-Davidson is one of resilience and ingenuity. William Harley and the Davidson brothers created a simple mode of transportation that transformed American industry, marketing, and popular culture around the world. And in the end, oh, it's that sound. That great hog sound. There's nothing like it. 
And what a story about innovation, about brotherhood, and about grit. Because in the end, between the lawsuit and the Great Depression and so many other things in between, the opportunity to just quit, the opportunity to just fold, it was everywhere. But these guys, these, these, these innovators, these, well, these American dreamers, it was their optimism that kept them pumping and kept them going. And that merchandising aspect, it can't be underestimated. The brand of Harley-Davidson and what it came to be. And Arnold Palmer, we learned about, he did sort of the same thing uh, in his own way and became a brand, a builder of golf clubs, golf courses, and an entire enterprise. If you can, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Check out that Palmer story and another American Dreamer story. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of Harley-Davidson. Great job on this, as always, Greg. Head out on the highway Looking for adventure And whatever comes our way Yeah, gotta go make it happen Take the world in a loving place Buy all of the guns and pumps And explode into space Every metal thunder, racing with the 